0: When you hear people talk about generational players, you probably think of Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, more recently Kylian Mbappe, Erling Haaland. A generational player is one who sets the benchmark by which all other players are measured. Is this player as good as this one? The generational player that I'm looking at today is one that's not necessarily one to set the standard of a generation, but rather a structure. For Bayern Munich, their generational player is one that is famously difficult to describe, So difficult, in fact, that you need to invent a word to try and cover at least half of what it is that he does. Ram Deuter is all nice and everything, but what Thomas Müller does for Bayern is so much more than just interpreting some space. He is simply Thomas Müller, and no one really knows what that means. The difficulty in explaining Thomas Müller comes as a perfect example of what has made him such a great player. He's unorthodox, unpredictable, unconventional. With all due respect, he's just very unfootball. There could be a case made that he's a hangup of how football was played 40 or 50 years ago, and while everyone else evolved, he knew one thing, and that was simply how to get goals. No matter what the generation was, Thomas Muller would thrive. For every physical or technical metric you could use to measure a player at Bayern Munich, Thomas Muller would almost certainly fail to come first in just about all of them. Alphonso Davies is faster, Joshua Kimmich is a better passer, Lucas Hernandez is a better tackler, Leroy Sane is better at free kicks, Jamal Musial is a better dribbler. None of this matters though, because even though Muller would not be at the top, he would by no means rank at the bottom, and therein lies the magic. No matter how you describe him, you miss crucial details. Is he the most technically gifted? No, but he has managed to reach double digits for assists in every Bundesliga season he's been a regular. The one season he didn't, 2015-16, he made up for it by scoring 20. Is he the fastest player? No. But such is his stamina that his 119th minute sprint will have the same determination as if it was immediately from kickoff. Is he the best goal scorer? No, but with 0.33 non-penalty goals per 90, he's comfortably above what is considered average. Is he the best dribbler in the team? No, but his 5.21 progressive passes per 90 allow the better dribblers to get into better positions and offer more of a threat on goal. What Muller offers the team is difficult to quantify, but watch any game of his and it just makes sense. He's looked at as a leader on the pitch, organising the press, encouraging his teammates. He's the Bastian schweinsteiger to Manuel Neuer's Philipp Lahm. Although the captain's armband is elsewhere, there's still leadership in the middle of the park. Or, more accurately, wherever the space is. So, before we answer the question of how do you replace a generational player, it would be good to answer the question, what makes Thomas Müller a generational player? Müller made his debut for Bayern aged 18 in the opening Bundesliga game of the 2008-09 season against SV Hamburg. He made an 11-minute feature coming on for Miroslav Klose, the debut is not the explosive start you would expect from someone whose career has gone the way his has. It was not special in terms of goals scored, important moments, or anything. He simply got his cap and then all but disappeared to Bayern's second team for the rest of the year. In the third division that season, Muller achieved 15 goals and five assists in 32 games, finishing as the third top goalscorer. Outside of a small handful of appearances for the senior team, Muller was not looking like he would set the world alight for Bayern's first 11. A Champions League debut and goal against Sporting Lisbon, 200 days after his Bundesliga debut, may have had enough of an impact to change this though. The Jurgen Klinsmann season under Bayern is widely considered to be the worst that the club have experienced in quite some time. Not helped by Oliver Kahn's departure the season before, Klinsmann became only the second manager in Bayern's history to be sacked before the end of his first season. Jupp Heynckes took over from Klinsmann in May of 2008 and, for the remainder of the season, and 106 consecutive league games after that, Muller never left the squad. His first full season as a Bayern player came under revolutionary manager Louis van Gaal. Van Gaal quickly warmed fans to the idea of Muller as one of the first names on the team sheet, famously declaring, Muller spielt by mir immer, or with me, Muller always plays. And he was not wrong. In van Gaal's first Bundesliga season, Muller featured in every game, playing 86% of the available minutes. For outfield players, only three were ahead, fellow academy graduates Philip Lahm, Bastian Schweinsteiger and Holger Badstuber. It's fitting for Van Hall's first season that among superstars like Frank Ribéry, Iron Robin, Miroslav Klose, Mark van Bommel, the four outfielders with the most minutes were Bayern through and through. During Muller's first season with Van Hall, his role was somewhat undefined. He was utilised as a winger on both flanks to similar levels of success, but the majority of his games came through the middle as a second striker able to adapt effortlessly to whoever played beside him. Mario Gomez was your typical centre-forward, tall, a target man for crosses from the wing and great at finding space in the box for guaranteed tap-ins. Miroslav Klose was far from prolific at Bayern, but he fit the mould of a Bayern player to a tee. Müller's best partnerships with Klose came on national duty, offering four assists in their 24 matches together. As Klose grew older, he lost his agility and speed that made him such a threat when he was younger. Physically, his time was clearly coming to an end but due to his technical ability and positional awareness, he remained Germany's preferred striker until he retired from national duty in 2014 at 36 years old. Muller worked well with Kloser, offering the agility and movement that Kloser couldn't. Even if neither of them scored, they both offered ample opportunity for their other teammates to do so. As for Ivica Olic, his profile was more or less one of a second striker. Just as adept at playing out wide, through the middle, or up top by himself, Olic greatly benefited from finding goal-scoring form in Europe, netting a semi-final hat-trick against Lyon to take Bayern to their first Champions League final in nine years. With both Müller and Olic in the squad, you essentially had two of the same player, an attacking everyman who could be dropped into any position on the front line and would more than likely do a good job. Once again, Müller made it work. There's perhaps reason to speculate that had Olic not joined Bayern that season, Müller would have taken on his roles and found a way to score even more. Essentially, no matter who was playing around him or what position he was put in, Muller's adaptability is what helped him and Bayern start to build something significant. He was a joker, interchangeable with any other forward, bringing his own unique spin on things. The role of second striker now seems so obvious for Muller. Not quite a 10, not quite a 9, not really a winger, but a kind of amalgam of all of it. The 431 one that Louis Van Gaal introduced to Bayern, that went on to form the basis of the club's future for around 10 years, looks to be fitted around Müller. Since 2010, barring a couple of moments here and there, Bayern have taken shape in a 3 one with Müller filling in between the two wingers and ahead of a double pivot. His profile allows for great in-game versatility with this initial setup, with a willing box-to-box midfielder in the pivot, often Bastian Schweinsteiger. Bayern are able to attack in numbers with the fullbacks joining in when possible. His defensive work, while less than perfect, is still notable, meaning that the team could transition from the initial 4-2-3-1 to a 5-4-1 quite effortlessly. In attack, Bayern regularly found themselves in a 2-3-5, with Müller in the middle of all of it, or wherever there was space. As Müller has grown as a player, his role has become less of a joker, the final piece of the puzzle, and more of a necessity to accommodate, with failure to do so rarely ending positively for players and managers alike. This makes sense though, Muller is a big game player and offers more on the pitch than just being the joker. But the idea of a player being so indispensable, being the focal point of a generation for a club, comes with a price. What Louis van Gaal did with Bayern was establish an identity that had been lacking for a while. He was at the club for less than two years, he fell out with just about everyone imaginable, and is still seen as quite a divisive character in football. Regardless of his personality though, it's apparent that he knows what he's talking about. So if he says that Bayern are best suited to line up like this, you should probably listen. But football continues to evolve, and while Müller has broken the mould of what it means to be a forward, there comes a time when you need to start looking to the future. With a backline that takes care of itself, the part of football that seems to develop and change the most is the midfield and attack. Defending, for all discussions of zonal or man marking and three versus four man backlines, has a principle that remains constant. What we're seeing in midfield though is a necessity for everyone to not just hold down the fort, but also carry out different roles in the middle of the park. The necessity to control a midfield has seen so many clubs and national teams move towards a 4-3-3. This formation means that you can have defensive solidity without negating your attacking abilities. You can progress the ball forward without the risk of leaving your defence exposed. With greater numbers in the middle, you have the opportunity to control the game at the pace you want. This was starting to come to the forefront when Muller was coming through, but including him in a midfield three doesn't seem like a viable option. Muller's best attributes have always been an attack, so to have him playing as an eight or even a slightly withdrawn number ten would be wasteful. Between 4-3-3 and 4-2-3-1, there can really only be one choice when Muller spielt immer. The most dominant that Bayern have been in the past decade has come when they play a 4-2-3-1. Two holding midfielders, a lone centre-forward, and wing is either side of the always moving Thomas Muller. Jep is won Bayern's first treble with this setup. Hansi Flick broke and set records with it. It is, for all intents and purposes, the quintessential Bayern Munich formation. Much in the same way that Barcelona are easily identifiable as a team built for 4 3 3, Bayern are 4 2 3 1. For some managers, this might have been a pain, but for a team sorely lacking an obvious identity, it came at the right time. It allowed Van Hal to build a team around a select group of individuals. Muller was a player whose flame was going to continue burning brightly for years to come. Tony Crows was another player coming through Bayern's ranks and had already registered a couple of goals and assists before leaving on loan to Leverkusen. With the attacking midfield area of the pitch now up for grabs, Muller took it and never looked back. And this is where the problems begin. Having a clear identity is a good thing. Players can identify with the club, they can buy into a philosophy, and fans have something to cheer for outside of the results at full time. But when your identity is so set in stone, a manager's job almost becomes redundant. With each incoming Bayern Munich manager, you essentially have one rule, and it's a rule that Van Hal stated in 2009. If you want to win not just the games, but also the fans, Muller always plays. It seems simple enough, but it comes with a caveat. It means that whoever the manager is, no matter what ideas they bring and what style of football they want to employ, whatever they do, Muller needs to be in the starting eleven every game. Pep Guardiola was the first victim of this. Always known for adaptability and his, at times detrimental, knack for tinkering with every minor aspect of a team, the 4-3-3 he utilised at Barcelona is often thought of as a gold standard for modern football. His successes stemmed from a trio of excellent, near-perfect midfielders a holding midfielder in Sergio Busquets, and two number eights in Xavi and Andres Iniesta. Seemingly a carbon copy of each other, they both offered different things. For Xavi, his game was simple. He made the perfect pass every time, and dictated the tempo of a game. While Iniesta was more offensive-minded, capable of moving the ball up the field, and being an important cog in the attack. If not for goals and assists, then for everything that led up to them. After a sabbatical, Guardiola took on the role of Bayern manager and, much to the chagrin of many fans, changed a supposedly working system to one that worked for him. He wanted to establish a diamond of Philip Lahm, Toni Kroos, Thiago Alcantara and Mario Goetze as the core of Bayern's team. And it's easy to see how this would translate to a Guardiola 4-3-3. Lahm would be Busquets, Kroos and Thiago would be Xavi and Iniesta, while Goetze has the very fun task of living up to the same standards of Lionel Messi. On either side of him, you would find Iron Robin and Frank Ribéry, undroppable Bayern players who, in their prime, would fit into any team in the world. It's not difficult to see the similarities in each position. In 2013 though, Bayern fans would ask the question, where do Thomas Müller and Bastian Schweinsteiger fit into this? Schweinsteiger's final two seasons with Bayern were hampered by injuries, and if there's one thing that Guardiola and every other manager treasures, it's availability. But Müller was available for just about every game possible, Despite this, he never had a set role under Pep. In his first season, he was utilized as a winger, a midfielder, a center forward. He was effective wherever, getting 26 goals and 14 assists in all competitions, but he was never considered a Guardiola type player. He was erratic, he was not fast, he was not skillful, he was not prolific, he was not technically superior to anyone, but he did all of these things well enough to be called upon. In his second year, Guardiola became more experimental, David Alaba's flexibility as a defender meant that Bayern regularly played with a three-man backline and a two-man attack composed of Müller and new arrival Robert Lewandowski. Born primarily out of Franck Ribéry's constant injury issues and Iron Robin following suit, Guardiola was forced to get creative. Bayern had to play big games without their go-to wingers for the first time in years. Although they lost in the Champions League, the synergy displayed by Müller and Lewandowski laid the foundation for the following season. It was not how Guardiola wanted to play, but it was a solution. A solution that came out of necessity, but a solution all the same. Muller's final season with Guardiola was his most prolific, scoring 20 goals in the Bundesliga, 8 in the Champions League and 4 in the DFB Pokal. It was as near perfect as you could ask for. Until it wasn't. In the first leg of the Champions League semi-final against Atletico Madrid, Muller started on the bench, making way for a three-man midfield consisting of Xabi Alonso, Thiago and Arturo Vidal. Muller entered the game after 70 minutes in place of Thiago, but it was too late. Ahead of kick-off, the general belief was that this was a huge call and one that might not pan out positively. Fundamentally, Bayern played very well. They dominated possession, got 15 shots in against an Atletico team known for defending with their lives. There was a goal-line clearance early on, Alaba hit the bar from distance, Vidal tested keeper Jan Black with tricky shots, Bayern did very well, but it was a solo effort from midfielder Saul that turned the balance early on, and Bayern were unable to come back from it. It was a freak goal and by no means a result of Müller not being on the pitch. And it was only the first leg, there was still another 90 minutes to come in Munich. As Bayern's dedicated penalty kick taker, the return leg saw one of the biggest chapter headings in Müller's career. A penalty miss against Atletico Madrid started a particularly poor stretch for him. Had he scored, Bayern could have progressed through to the final of the Champions League. Instead, they were knocked out, and it took quite a time for Müller to recover. As Guardiola bowed out, Carlo Ancelotti was appointed manager. As has now become common knowledge, Ancelotti had an incredibly hands-off approach to managing the team, essentially setting it to autopilot for the 60 games he took charge of. Insisting on a 4-3-3, Müller's role at Bayern was stifled. After a hat-trick of assists in the opening game against Werder Bremen, he only managed to score once and assist two more in the first half of the league. For a player that the team was once built around, these are objectively poor numbers, and it was not even a case of the data saying one thing and reality saying another. He was simply ineffective. Robin didn't seem to lose a step playing a more forward role of a right winger, neither did Ribéry. Lewandowski equalled his best scoring numbers, and the midfield trio of Vidal, Thiago and Alonso seemed to work really well together, Offering technical excellence, physicality, and creativity. In Ancelotti's buy in, Muller didn't have a place. 27 goal involvements for an underperforming player is still very good, but it was evident that unless something changed, Muller's future at the club was uncertain for the first time ever. This was especially highlighted when, in one of the biggest games of the season against the high flying RB Leipzig, Ancelotti did opt for a 4 2 3 1, but instead utilised Thiago as a 10, in a move that was largely celebrated as a masterstroke. A 3-0 victory against a team that looked to be Bayern's biggest challenges that season, Thiago took to the more advanced role effortlessly. With Muller's form waning and no real obvious way of him getting back into the squad, rumours of a possible departure were creeping up again and again. To be more specific, the departure would not necessarily have been a sale, but rather allowing his contract to run down. Almost blessed by a constantly injured duo of Ribéry and Robin, the need for Muller's versatility was all too apparent, and he stayed, outlasting Ancelotti, who was sacked in September, just ten games into the new season. When Jupp Heinkers took over from Ancelotti, there was this expectation that Muller would instantly turn it around and get back into his old habits. Sure enough, Heynckes arrived, placed Muller in the middle of the pitch behind the striker, and things started to tick again. Getting two assists in Heinkers' first two games back, and 29 further goal involvements for the rest of the season. Then the Nico Kovac era began. To suggest that Kovac's time as Bayern manager was met with a mixed reception is putting it lightly. He was regularly talked about as the worst manager since Klinsmann, out of his depth, not fit to manage big players like James Rodriguez or Thomas Muller, Lisa Muller, Thomas's wife, once took to Instagram to criticise Kovac for waiting 70 minutes before substituting her husband on. In Kovac's second season, Muller was a substitute for four Bundesliga games in a row. He was far from the mainstay that fans had grown to see him as, and his first full game of the 2019-20 season came in late October. For the criticism that Kovac and Angelotti received during their spells as manager, one can't help but respect them for doing things their way. Brave may not be the right word to describe Kovac, but it was almost admirable to see a relatively inexperienced manager not bowing to what he was told he had to do. And the same goes for Ancelotti. Two managers at different stages of their career tried to buck the trend and take Bayern into a new generation. It had to happen at some point. But as Heinkes proved, it was not the time in 2017. And as Hansi Flick proved in 2019, it wasn't then either. Kovac eventually resigned from his post and was replaced by Hansi Flick. The transformation that Müller and the team experienced under Flick was notable to say the least. With 44 assists in 81 games, Müller seemed faster, more skillful, a better passer of the ball, hungrier to win, something that never seemed possible under Ancelotti or Kovac. One interesting thing to point out though, is that in the 16 games Müller did not start for Bayern under Kovac, Bayern only lost two of them. This tells one side of a much more nuanced story, but it does begin to suggest that what works well for one manager may not work as effectively for another. Without wishing to state the obvious, at 33 years old, Thomas Muller is not 21 anymore. But despite this, he's still capable of doing what he's always found a way to do, and that is create opportunities. But time waits for no one, and as much as he's able to evade defenders, he cannot evade the inevitability of retirement. His extension earlier this year was not a huge surprise given his stature in the squad and his attacking output. In the 2019-20 season, Müller broke the record for the most assists in a Bundesliga campaign. 21 was the number to reach, and he did it with relative comfort. As impressive as this is, the fact that he's managed to match this number in consecutive seasons after is even greater. But as he is such an anomaly, Müller could have either retired at the end of last season, or in six years' time, and both would make just as much sense. Thinking realistically, he could probably continue for a good number of years. He'll finish this season at 33 years old, which, thinking realistically, leaves the door open for perhaps two or three more years. But knowing him, it could be five more seasons with the club. He's never truly relied on his athleticism to succeed. His speed, his agility or his shooting have never been what makes him so special. He's simply relied on being good enough. And by most metrics, he remains good enough. Without him, the Bayern attack often looks lost. Even when he's not contributing with goals and assists, his presence on the pitch is still a difference maker. The question is though, three years from now at 36 years old, will it still be a case of Müller spielt immer, or will Bayern need to start looking to the future? As difficult of a situation as this may be, Bayern need to start planning for a life without Müller sooner rather than later. What Bayern currently face though, is the prospect of having to consider the futures of their two longest-serving players in Thomas Muller and captain Manuel Neuer. This just so happens to come so soon after the departure of Robert Lewandowski. Of these three, Neuer's replacement is probably going to be the hardest to find. No matter how good they are, the next Bayern keeper will have a nearly impossible benchmark to reach. There's no argument for Neuer being the greatest goalkeeper of his generation, but extending that further, it's hard to argue against him being the greatest goalkeeper of all time. Even this season, when his performances are notably slower and, I'm reluctant to say, less confidence-inspiring, he's still capable of pulling off saves that only he could. But Neuer is so much more than saves. Talking about him only as a subsection in a wider discussion about Thomas Muller does no service to his ability and his career. When you're talking about the first definition of generational players, Bayern can comfortably look at Manuel Neuer. I do not envy the person tasked with taking over his role, They could be one of the brightest talents in the world, they will not be Manuel Neuer. For Robert Lewandowski, his departure has been less detrimental as was first suggested it would be. Bayern's attack has shown to be capable of being more prolific than before, with goals being spread across a larger group of individuals. But the run of draws experienced so early in the season are obviously and always going to be blamed on him leaving. It's easy to talk about a run of draws as being because Bayern dearly miss Lewandowski, but it is a much more nuanced issue. There was enough at the start of the season to see that this team is capable of working without him. Could Bayern have overturned these games into victories with Lewandowski? Quite possibly yes, but it must be stated clearly and for the people at the back, this is not because Lewandowski left. One could also be inclined to argue that certain players can finally reach their potential now they're no longer burdened with having to serve one player. Bayern have taken an Oakland A's approach to Lewandowski leaving, recreating him in the aggregate. In the first four games of the season, Bayern were at their prolific best, but the goals were no longer saved for one person. The team seemed much more well-rounded, and attacks seemed more dynamic and unpredictable. In this sense, replacing Lewandowski's output with multiple players has worked like a charm. As for Muller, after well over a decade of being the focal point of the team, finding a like-for-like player would be incredibly difficult. The initial belief was that Jamal Musiala would be the perfect replacement, considering the high ceiling his career appears to have but his playstyle is so massively different to Muller's that he would by no means act as a replacement. Muller exists in this liminal role, and replacing it like for like seems more complicated and almost impossible. Not quite a 10, not quite a 9, not really a winger, but a kind of amalgam of all of it. How do you find another version of that guy? The solution? You don't. You close the chapter of Muller and begin looking to a future where a squad can offer more in the way of flexibility, dynamism, and, maybe the most important, security. Fundamentally, Bayern need to move away from the idea of another second striker who completes a 4-2-3-1. The solution to Muller leaving should be that version of Byn leaving with him. A player as complicated and as brilliant as Muller unfortunately brings about certain issues in regards to squad planning and in-game decision making. The idea of a manager being dynamic and adaptable is somewhat wasted when you know that your attack has to look a certain way. Without this template, Julian Nagelsmann could potentially help shape Byn into a malleable outfit, developing a clear and new identity along the way, becoming Byn's next Louis van Gaal. But with this strong arm in place, Bayern have no choice but to carry the flag of an idea that was set out several generations ago. But Thomas Müller is a generational player, but the generations are changing as each year goes by. The next chapter after Müller should not be another second striker or a number 10. It should be a Bayern Munich that offers a stable midfield that protects the back line and reduces the risk of being overrun and hit on a counter. The successor must be a defensive midfielder a purely defensive midfielder, whose task is not covering the space in front of the opposition's defence, but rather covering the space in front of Bayern's. The player in question? Nicholas Dorsch. Nicholas Dorsch joined Bayern when he was 14 years old, and stayed for six years before leaving for 2nd Division Heidenheim. During his time there he gained the much-needed experience of senior football, and has been considered by many fans as one of the best players in the club's history. After two seasons, Dorsch moved to Ghent in Belgium's first division before moving back to Germany, establishing himself as a starting defensive midfielder for FC Augsburg. Before we go any further, I am very aware that Dorsch is far from the greatest defensive midfielder in the world, but in the right team, he certainly could become that. For tackles and interceptions, he's in the 89th percentile across Europe's top 5 leagues. His attacking output does not paint a brilliant picture, but as a defensive midfielder, does it need to? What the club have experienced in the last few years, time and time again, is a midfield composed of excellent players who get overrun too easily. There's a very simple reason as to why this is the case. Leon Goretzka has a fantastic propensity to get forward. Jamal Musial, his best asset, is carrying the ball forward. Joshua Kimmich, considered to be one of the best defensive midfielders in the world, is actually one of the best number 10s in the world. He isn't a defensive midfielder. His heat map on a good day is that of a box-to-box midfielder. His best asset, is creativity, able to pick out a pass from anywhere on the pitch. For just about every midfielder Bayern have, their best trait is going forward. If we look at each of these four players across separate seasons, we can start to see that Dorsch is not just a great replacement for a specialist player, but could actually be a replacement for others in this squad. For Dorsch, we can look at his first season at Augsburg, his first as a regular in the Bundesliga. For Goretzka and Kimmich, we can look at their first full season together as a double pivot, which was the 2020-21 season. For Musiala, we can look at the season he really announced himself to the world, 2021-22. Tackles made per 90. Joshua Kimmich, 1.84. Leon Goretzka, 2.49. Jamal Musiala, 2.33. Niklas Dorsch, 3.29. Tackles in defensive third. Joshua Kimmich, 0.66. Leon Goretzka, 0.9. Jamal Musiala, 0.67. Niklas Dorsch, 1.94 1.94 Times dribbled past by opponent Josu Kimmich 1.89 Leon Goretzka 1.16 Jamal Musiala 1.41 Nicholas Dorsch 0.93 You can cherry pick stats for days to paint whatever picture you want, but just from these you can start to see exactly what Dorsch offers that the others don't. Tackles 1 per 90 Dorsch wins 2.09 Musiala wins 1.54 Goretzka 1.48, Kimmich 1.39. For tackles made in the middle third, only Goretzka is ahead of him with 1.38, to Dorsch's 1.13. In the attacking third, Dorsch is dead last, right where he should be. Just about every defensive metric you could look at shows Dorsch is not just an option for this role, but actually an upgrade, You can maybe look at his defensive stats and come to the conclusion that, of course his defensive performance is going to be greater. He plays for a weaker side who have to defend. Bayern play on the front foot and Augsburg typically go into games as an underdog. If they're not going to attack as much as Bayern, it's unlikely that Dorsch would even have the chance to have worse defensive stats. There's certainly an element to this, but the fact is fairly black and white. What Dorsch is doing at a supposedly lesser side is something that Bayern's current midfield don't do as well. What's more than that? He did all of that in his first full debut season in the Bundesliga. he had played one game in the Bundesliga before, when he was 20 years old, for Bayern Munich. Ironically, he actually scored in that game. He played 90 minutes, playing as a central midfielder. The formation, 4-3-3. Thomas Müller, an unused substitute. That was in 2018, and in 2022, the midfield getting overrun is a far too common sight. The defensive performances have been shaky at best, and at other times, just downright abysmal. Whatever you may think of Benjamin Pavard, Matisse de Ligt, Deo Upamecano, Lucas Hernandez, one can't help but think that their performances in defence are not helped by the lack of cover they have once an opponent gets through on goal. The midfield is pushed so high up that any chance of tracking back almost seems redundant. When your defensive midfielder is playing as high up the pitch as a number 10, opponents simply have one line to break before they're through on goal. But having this midfield security really only becomes a possibility when you remove Muller, unless of course you change every other element to include him. Imagine you have three lights, and one of them is turned off. If you turn it on, one of the other lights will go off. When you turn that one on, the other light goes off. There is no way to have all three lights on at the same time. Sometimes this idea is used in sales, cheap, good, quick, but you can only have two of them. This is a parallel to the situation that Bayern currently find themselves in. For the longest time, the team picks itself, happy with one of their lights switched off. The lineups were predictable and the approach to each game was seemingly identical, regardless of form, competition or opponent. Never was this more apparent than under Hansi Flick. Thought of by many as Bayern's saviour, Flick's only full season was perhaps thankfully overshadowed by the overwhelming success of his end to the 2019-20 season. He left Bayern having won two Bundesliga trophies, a DFL Cup, DFL Super Cup, a Club World Cup, a UEFA Super Cup, and a Champions League. But Flick also oversaw a second-round cup knockout to second-division Holstein Kiel, a 4-1 loss to Hoffenheim in the second game of the season, five consecutive games where Bayern conceded within the first half, it was the worst defensive performance in nearly 30 years. One has to imagine that had he not lifted the Champions League trophy eight months prior, Flick's time at Bayern would have come to an end a lot sooner. Bayern were knocked out of the Champions League by PSG in the quarterfinals. Going into both legs without Lewandowski and other injury issues, Bayern had been making a habit of gifting their opponents chance after chance all season, and there was no way they would be blessed with the same fortune against the PSG attack that they had been in Lisbon. Depending on who you ask, Bayern were knocked out for different reasons. The XG says that Bayern should have gone through. If Sane passes instead of taking a shot, Bayern would have won. My argument goes like this. Hansi Flick knew well before kickoff that Bayern would be without Lewandowski and made absolutely no concessions for this. In a match Bayern were going to need to outscore their opponent, they made no effort to stop their opponent scoring to begin with. It was the same approach that saw Hoffenheim win 4-1 in September. It was the same approach that saw Bayern get knocked out of the cup to a team in the league below. It was the same approach that had seen Bayern concede 50 goals across all competitions before the ball had even been kicked. Bayern seemed to be in control across both legs, but the PSG goals were basically guaranteed to them ahead of the game. Bayern ended that season having conceded 59 goals. Conversely, they scored 139. Thomas Muller had 39 goal involvements, Robert Lewandowski had 57. The attack was great and was working as perfectly as one could have hoped. But assuming everyone was fit, the team picked itself for better or worse. Alphonso Davies on the left side of defence, Robert Lewandowski as the centre forward, Joshua Kimich in midfield and two wingers from the interchangeable selection of Kingsley co-man, Serge Gnabry and Leroy Sane. The final and most important name on that list? Thomas Muller, taking up his role behind the centre forward as he had done for the past decade. Regardless of form, competition or opponent, this group would start. Muller in that lineup forces the manager into playing a two-man midfield. Josue Kimmich takes his role without question, and his partner takes the spot next to him, presumably Leon Goretzka. And automatically, just from picking one player, the rest of the team falls into place. Wingers either side of Muller and Lewandowski up front, a defence that takes care of itself, two centre-backs, Alphonso Davies on the left, Benjamin Pavard on the right. But what if you want a three-man midfield and Muller and Lewandowski? in which case you need to play with wing backs and three defenders at the back. The three in midfield, Kimmich, Goretzka, whoever else, Lewandowski and Muller up front, and then Alfonso Davies as a left wing back, a role that he is perfectly suited for, but there's no right wing back. Maybe Kingsley Coman, but he doesn't have the same defensive acumen as Davies does. Pavard probably isn't suited to that role as he doesn't have the same attacking acumen as Davies does. What if you play a three-man midfield without Lewandowski? Muller would have to play up top by himself, and he's often struggled without another body in the middle for him to work with. Is it possible to have a three-man midfield that offers defensive security and have Thomas Müller in the side? It is, but there are too many deficiencies elsewhere on the pitch for that to be viable. It sounds awful to suggest that Müller is the cause of Bayern's overrun midfield, because without him, certain plays are not at their best. Lewandowski worked too well with Müller to take him out. He managed without Müller, but the difference of having him on the pitch versus not is too clear to ignore. Could Kimmich have done more in regards to defending and offer the cover that a nominal defensive midfielder would? Yes he absolutely could have, and absolutely still should, but that means his best traits would be wasted and the team would lose a brilliant spark of creativity. Could Goretzka have been the muscle in the centre of the park and stay back to provide the security of the defenders? He could, and this maybe makes the most sense, but for someone who is often good for a goal, having him so far away from the penalty box just seems ill-advised. In 2022 not much time has passed, but Julian Nagelsmann is in charge of ushering in a new generation of Bayern, but the problems still exist. The midfield remains overrun despite Marcel Sabitzer's best efforts. Goretzka returning to fitness could actually end up undoing a lot of what has been improved with Sabitzer's renaissance, but even if this doesn't happen, the midfield pairing of Kimmich and Sabitzer does not look as safe as it could do. The 4-2-2-2 that Nagelsmann had presented at the start of the season almost plays to the strength of everyone involved. Sadio Mane is not as prolific as Lewandowski, but has regularly been a bright spark in the lead-up to goals. Serge Gnabry's form is coming and going this front two at one point looked to be a perfect segue to a world without Lewandowski. The first games with this new system looked not just good, but actually better than what we had had the year prior. But Muller's role seems somewhat undefined. The second two behind the striker seems perfect for him. Not quite a 10, not really a winger, but a kind of amalgam of all of it. It seems to be a perfect match for him so why is he not having this impact in 11 games he's only scored once and assisted three times he's played without lewandowski before so it can't be a case of him missing his friend it is still early but at his current rate he's on track to only register 14 goal involvements this bundesliga this would be his lowest tally to date without wishing to jump to any major conclusions his struggle to make an impact this season could be an indication that his time is coming to an end at bayern There is a new generation of players waiting to take on his role, and his role is not that of a second striker behind the centre forward, his role is the one to define the generation of the club. The day is rapidly approaching where he will have to let that happen. Sad though it may be, time waits for no one. What comes next for Bayern should be a switch to a setup that has formed the basis of some of the best teams in Europe over the last 20 years. Looking at each team that's won the Champions League for the past two decades, each one of them had one player whose job was to shield the defensive line and clear up any issues. Sergio Busquets at Barcelona has probably been the archetypal defensive midfielder, the generational one so to speak. That midfield trio of Busquets, Xavi and Iniesta, the one that was considered the gold standard, could quite easily be mirrored at Bayern. The talent that Bayern have in their midfield is that of some of the best players in the world who could offer each of those things that each of those players brought. Tempo, possession, progression, control, security. But the way this squad is put together, it seems difficult to emulate now. But there are so many parallels that it would be a waste to not build towards it. If you were to look for Bayern's answer to Xavi and Iniesta, look no further than Joshua Kimmich and Jamal Musiala. Xavi is actually Kimmich's idol, and their ability to make the perfect pass and control the speed of a game is nearly identical. And while Leon Goretzka is often thought of as the perfect partner for Kimmich, looking at Musiala and watching him dribble is like watching a very young Iniesta. And with the right-holding midfielder behind them, say Nicholas Dorsch, this trio could run Bayern's midfield for years but these parallels are currently being diminished by the necessity to fit in a specialist player elsewhere on the pitch. How can a team with one of the best passes of the ball in Kimmich, and one of the best dribblers of the ball in Musiala thrive? The answer only becomes viable when Thomas Muller leaves. What made Muller such an interesting and exciting player was the fact that he didn't fit the mould of anything. Not quite a 10, not quite a 9, not really a winger. What got him his plaudits, the recognition, the trophies and the acclaim, could be the thing that is now holding him back. If he was a number 10, if he was a number 9, if he was a winger, this discussion would not be happening. Unfortunately, he's none of those things. He is Thomas Muller. And no one really knows what that means. (laughs)